0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org.
1: All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious. episode 147 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Tonight we're going to be talking about WandaVision, uh, the recent Disney Plus series, and um, with me tonight are Marie Hawes and Sarah Thomas. Hi ladies. Hey. Hi there. I'm Katie Grubbs, um, and we're going to go around pretty quickly and introduce ourselves before we get to the meat of this fascinating TV series. Marie, why don't you start us off?
0: Sure. So I'm Marie Haas, a regular panelist on the show, and I'm currently working as a research assistant for an edition of the Tudor Works of Christine de Pizan, and I live in Connecticut with my husband and our two-year-old and our four-month-old, and we've just moved to a little bit of a bigger apartment, which is great to have a little bit more space to promptly cover in a thick layer of baby stuff. So that's
1: what we're doing currently. Awesome. Yeah, they, they expand to fill. The space that you have, our family. Sarah, how about you?
2: Hi, I am Sarah Thomas. I am currently teaching high school English at a private high school in the metropolitan Atlanta area, where I live with uh, my husband and our two dogs. Uh, We uh, we have picked up a second one named Ursula. She has joined Archie. And um, she's giving us a run for our money right now. <laughs> Very different personality from Archie's.
1: Oh man, that that kind of personality stuff is can be so hard to manage. I feel like in, in pets or people. <laughs> so good that luck, was man. one of
2: the- That was one of the things we noticed is, you know, Archie was so chill and everybody was like, oh, just you wait, you're going to get a second dog. And, you know, things are going to be totally different. We were like, whatever, we totally got this. And Ursula is quite spirited, uh, which is proving an education. So, yes, (laughs) I can empathize. (laughs) I I feel like in, in some ways I can, well, maybe, maybe not empathize, but I can sympathize with uh, with parents navigating different personalities as well. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh yeah, um, I'm Katie Grubbs and I at the moment live in Sugar Land, Texas. By the time this episode airs, I will no longer be living in Sugar Land, Texas because we are about to move to Birmingham, Alabama. Um, I uh, to My husband, David Grubbs of the CHP is taking a job teaching at a uh, a Christian classical school there to start in the fall. And so we are going to be leaving, leaving um, Sugarland and moving to Birmingham. And we're going to go ahead and move there and then uh, stay with family and look for a house to live in, um, for the next year. So, um, I am an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist university, and that's actually going to continue. I'm a fully online professor. So my work is just going to go with me and that's awesome because I love working at HBU. So I'm going to keep that up next year. And we, uh, we live here in Texas with our four children. Um, who are very excited about moving uh, in part because uh, one of the only, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this, but one of the only Bucky's gas stations, which is like a huge Texas thing. Um, it's like the Disneyland of gas stations. One of the only ones outside Texas is in Alabama, right close to Birmingham <laughs> where we're going to be living. So they don't have to say goodbye to Bucky's. So they're very excited about that. Um, well, we are going to go ahead and jump right in. Uh, to talking about WandaVision. Um, And I just wanted to say for a second why we're talking about this series. Um, This kind of this kind of was a journey getting to this topic for this episode, because this was originally supposed to be the slot where we were going to talk about the movie Black Widow, um, Disney's Black Widow movie, which has now been postponed two or three times um, because of the pandemic. And it got pushed back a year to May, and we were going to talk about it. And then just recently, it got pushed back again to July. So eventually, listeners, we do hope to talk about Black Widow if it ever actually comes out. But in the meantime, we're going to focus some uh, some time on WandaVision. And I thought it would be a perfect fit for CFP because it is a really, really close look at um, a woman undergoing extreme trauma, but also a woman who possesses extreme power and how those two things work together. And so I think it's going to really bear fruit, and we're going to have a really great discussion. I wanted to start our knowing section by just kind of talking about when did we first encounter the character of Wanda Maximoff, a.k.a. the Scarlet Witch, which is the name she receives at the end of this series. Um, And so let's just go around and talk about that. If you had any familiarity before you watched WandaVision, um, did you or not? Um, Or maybe a better question would be, what is your familiarity with the kind of Marvel Cinematic Universe, or did you have any before this series? So um, would you like to start us off, Sarah?
2: Sure, I can start us off. Uh, I first encountered the character of Wanda Maximoff uh, four days ago when I started watching the series in preparation for this episode. Um, I have not read the comics. I um, My exposure to graphic novels in general has been uh, fairly limited, and I think... Uh, of the, I'm aware of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I know that it exists. I know that there are lots of storylines and lots of films. I think I read in preparation for the episode, there's something like 21 of them that are currently part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe or MCU. I think of those, the only one I remember seeing from start to finish was the first Iron Man. Um, i'm pretty sure i watched at least half of the first incredible hulk movie and i think i've seen clips of one of the avengers movies so uh, i have uh, i am a fairly newcomer or yeah fairly newcomer if that's the way to say it uh to both wanda maximoff and to this particular storyline within the marvel universe
0: marie how about you Yeah, I also haven't read any of the comics, um... And so my first encounter with this character was in the MCU films, which I have seen, but like I was saying before the show, I watch these films and then I immediately forget everything that happened in them. So they're sort of enjoyable to me, but I don't hold all the details in my mind, certainly. Um, So I didn't really have a lot of Wanda's past in mind as I was watching the series, not any more than the series um, brings up itself, the, the, the past from the films.
1: So I am um, I'm definitely the most uh, in, in this little conversation tonight, definitely the most familiar with with a lot of these characters. I'm not, i not I also have not read the comic books, um, but I am very familiar with the MCU. Um, we are big fans, uh, I guess, of the MCU in this house. So I've seen I think the only MCU film that I haven't seen is are, is actually um, The Incredible Hulk one. The the original Incredible Hulk, Um, because Mark Ruffalo is the only Hulk I've seen. So I haven't seen like the Norton Hulk movie or the Eric Bana Hulk movie. Um, But I've seen all the other ones, Um, all the Iron Man, the Thor movies Um, in our house. We have a particular love for Thor Ragnarok, which is just absolutely hilarious. Everyone should watch that movie, even if you've never seen anything else with Thor in it. Um, It's just a great comedy. Film. Um, I and uh, and I have some uh, a pretty good familiarity with Marvel TV, too. Um, I've watched all of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I was an early adopter of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and um, I loved the two seasons of Agent Carter, which was a fantastic series. It's also available on Disney Plus Plus. and um, it before WandaVision, it was the first Um, Disney, I mean, it was the first MCU series focused on a female protagonist, which is Peggy Carter, who was the beloved of Captain America until he got frozen in the ice. And um, it's a really fun exploration of what it is like to be a woman working in a male dominated field. Um, So I had had, you know, I kind of knew all the background. It, It is interesting how I encountered Wanda, because for whatever reason, I kind of missed avengers age of ultron i didn't see it in the theater when it came out which is weird because i saw all the other avengers movies early on i mean my dad and i were in the theater at midnight watching avengers endgame when it came out a couple years ago um but for whatever reason i missed that one and that really is her introduction was her introduction um other than like a post credit scene in a previous film that was the big introduction to wanda maximoff and her brother Uh, Pietro, her twin, um, was Avengers Age of Ultron. And so I actually saw her in, uh, you know, Avenger, uh, Captain America Civil War. I think she was in that one. I saw her in, you know, Infinity War and Endgame all before I'd ever watched Ultron. I didn't sit down to watch Avengers Age of Ultron until like this summer, I think, or last summer, summer 2020. So um, which is kind of weird. I was I was seeing her not with depth because in the big ensemble movies, there's just not time. She doesn't you know, you don't get a lot of depth Um, and there is a huge scene in Avengers uh, Infinity War where she has to spoiler alert, you know, listeners, she has to basically kill the vision and take take the to get the, the mind stone out of his head all for naught. Um, because it ends up not working anyway. That ploy doesn't work. So um, then I went back and watched Avengers Age of Ultron, which is where you kind of first meet her. You see why in the beginning she's allied with Hydra against the Avengers and what changes that. You get your first kind of ideas about her powers, what she can do, and you, you watch her lose her brother in that movie. So all of that is very important. And a lot of that stuff comes back in WandaVision. So I would say if you if you haven't seen a lot of those earlier movies just for understanding Wanda, maybe watch Avengers Age of Ultron Um, and then like Infinity War, because that can give you a lot of good information um, about that. Um, well, I'm going to start us off with just a, a brief overview of of the series, and then Maria and Sarah are going to fill in some other types of background. Um, and so just to kind of give an idea of what 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 even is WandaVision. Um, so WandaVision is a nine episode series. I suppose I should say season because the implication is there are, is that there might be more seasons of this show. But right now we have one season, nine episodes. Each one's about a half hour long. So it's a it's a fairly short form Um each episode is a fairly short form thing, but they all are very clearly one big hole. Um, and, uh, it came, the, the Disney debuted the series in January, 2021, um, coming out with new episodes, um, not all at the same time. It wasn't a big dump where you can binge the whole season. There was a lag time. Now, when I, by the time I watched it, all the episodes were out. So I did binge it in like two nights. But um, people who started watching it right away had to wait, which I think is kind of fun given um, how the show is riffing on sitcoms, like Sarah's going to talk about later. Because um, it gave you that experience of like living in the 80s or 90s and having to wait for the next episode kind of thing. Um, so... This series is on Disney Plus. It's the first series in what we, what is called Phase 4 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's divided up into phases. And this story is supposed to be happening immediately after the events of Avengers Endgame. Um, and another thing that's important about where it fits in the chronology is that this series is very specific setup for um, an upcoming film which is Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, um, which is going to be coming out in 2022. And one is actually going to appear in that movie um, with Doctor Strange, played by Benedict Cumberbatch. So um, that's kind of where it fits into the whole. Um, Some other, you know, just kind of details. um, This particular series was written by Jacqueline Schaefer, who... Um, was co-writer on Captain Marvel, and she's also writing uh, written on the Black Widow movie. So she's kind of, I guess, a go-to in the MCU for writing female heroes. Um, and that also matters a lot because... Um, In this series, we have Monica Rambeau, who is a character that also appeared as a child in the Captain Marvel movie, right? And she's going to be part of the MCU going forward. So there's those connections. Um, So written by Jacqueline Schaefer, directed by Matt Shackman, who's directed tons of great TV series, like he's done episodes of Fargo, Game of Thrones. And most interestingly to me, he's artistic director of the Geffen Playhouse in L.A. And I think you can kind of see that um, that kind of uh, that he's a person who directs directs plays and a lot of the blocking and um, the kind of ways he's directed as actors in this particular series. Um, music by Chris, Christoph Beck did the score. The, the theme songs were done by Robert Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez, who probably most famously did the, music, the songs for Frozen the frozen movies. So, um, a lot of big names, a lot of talent on this series. Um, and then the only other thing in terms of connections is that there are several crossover characters in this series with other MCU properties. I mentioned Monica Rambeau, who's from captain Marvel, but you also have, um, Darcy Lewis who is, um, come in, coming in to, to, to work on this anomaly and she's from the Thor movies. And then you also have, um, the character of Jimmy Woo who was in the Ant-Man movies. Um, both Ant-Man movies. Um, and so maybe just Ant-Man and the Wasp, actually. Let me back up. Um, so it's interesting how they did it. They pulled in all these different characters from different films to be on the TV series to kind of and it kind of makes a new group. And I think it, it's, it's interesting chemistry. Um, so I think that's all I wanted to say. Oh, and then just I mean, obviously. Major, uh, major names on this would be Paul Bettany, who plays the Vision, and Elizabeth Olsen, who plays Wanda Maximoff. Um, and the, uh, the third really kind of biggish name in WandaVision is Catherine Hahn, um, who plays Agnes, later known as Agatha. So that, those are just kind of the basics, just to give you a breakdown. Um, what we're going to do now is Marie is going to walk us through just kind of the, the overarching plot of this whole season, just to kind of let you know the big contours of the story. Sure and I'll try to be pretty quick here. Uh, So the season
0: starts off with, like Katie mentioned, the format being in these sitcom parodies and we jump forward to another TV era every episode. Uh, Wanda and the Vision seem to have a perfect life in this idyllic black and white 1950s town of Westview. It starts off in the 1950s and every so often you have these hints that something isn't quite right so uh, they can't remember how they got there or how they met and there's these startling flashes of this Pleasantville style red that disrupt the black and white sometimes. There's also these occasionally, uh, occasional ads that are period appropriate but that give you the sense of something being off. So within sitcom world, Wanda has a nosy neighbor friend named Agnes, and she becomes friends with Geraldine, who helps Wanda deliver a pair of very speedily gestated twins in a 1970s era episode, Now in Color. In the following episode, we leave the Westview setting and sitcom format to learn that Westview is actually contained in this strange barrier and an agency called S.W.O.R.D. is investigating it, along with the crossover characters that were just mentioned, uh, FBI agent Jimmy Wu and Dr. Darcy Lewis. And we find out then that Geraldine is actually Monica Rambeau, who had passed through the barrier and had her personality suppressed to become the Westview character of Geraldine, um, only to then be expelled through the barrier again by Wanda, who we learn is actually magically controlling this Westview reality. The series then returns to the sitcom parodies, but interspersed with scenes that show these external investigations going on. Wanda's twin, Pietro, seems to return, and uh, Wanda is growing increasingly guilty over what she's doing to Westview's residents, controlling them in this strange reality she's created. And we eventually learn, too, that it was Agnes all along. Agnes is really Agatha Harkness, a centuries-old witch who has befriended Wanda and has been controlling this actually fake Pietro in order to try to gain the secret of Wanda's vast magical abilities. We finally find out that that secret is that Wanda's magic, which was amplified by an encounter with the Mind Stone when Wanda was with Hydra, makes Wanda into uh, the Scarlet Witch, a being who can extreme, uh, who can, um, who is extremely powerful, uh, wielding uh, chaos magic. So Wanda's powers, not completely under her conscious control, were what manifested the Westview reality in response to her grief. And this included completely creating the Westview version of Vision, who's unable to leave the barrier without disintegrating. And the same is true of Wanda's twins. So in the finale, Wanda faces off against Agatha, who is trying to steal Wanda's chaos magic, and the Westview Vision battles with a White Vision who's been illegally restored with his memory suppressed from the original Vision's body by Sword Director Hayward, who wants to use him as a sentient weapon. Um, With a little help from Captain Rambeau, who has, it turns out, gained super abilities by passing through the reality barrier so many times, Wanda then beats Agatha and imprisons her mind in the nosy neighbor character, and the Westview Vision unlocks the White Vision's memories and talks him into flying off. Wanda then ends the Westview reality, freeing the Westview residents and disintegrating both the Westview Vision and the twins. Um, Director Hayward is arrested and in the final scene of the series we see Wanda in isolation in a mountain cabin studying the powerful magic book called The Darkhold, presumably to try to learn more about her chaos magic and how to control it. So we'll have to see how this all ends up tying into the next uh, Doctor Strange movie, because the series leaves a few loose ends that could be taken up in later stories. So we have the white vision zooming off to who knows where. Um, We have Agatha saying that Wanda doesn't know what she's done, but we don't find out, like, what is it that she's done. (laughs) Uh, We have Agent Wu who is looking for a missing person in Westview, and we don't find out who that was. And this uh, speed-powered person who had been possessed by Agatha to be the fake Pietro could show up again, perhaps. And obviously, Captain Rambo is going to go on to her own adventures. I also think that hopefully and very likely, the disintegrated twins will make some sort of reappearance at some point. In the final seconds of the series, we hear a voiceover of them calling out to Wanda for help. So that's just a really quick overview of some of the main points of the, the narrative in this series.
1: Thanks so much, Marie. That was amazingly detailed, and that's really going to help us as we're moving forward to um, to know what we're all talking about <laughs> for listeners to know what we're talking about. So, um, Marie mentioned that this show is giving is riffing on very specific um, sitcoms of the past um, as a major part of its structure, and so Sarah's going to walk us through now which TV shows are being discussed and how those echoes are coming through in the series.
2: Yes. So, as Marie mentioned. Uh, So, yes, as Marie mentioned, the kind of each episode of the show takes a look at a particular decade or couple of decades of uh, television sitcom history. So we start out in episode one. Uh, which is set in the late 50s or very early 60s, making references to uh, most obviously to the Dick Van Dyke show, which originally aired from 1961 to 1966. Um, The key tip offs uh, for this reference are in the the home, the layout of uh, Wanda and Vision's home. Um, And then in the opening credit sequence, which is where a lot of these um, overlaps take place, although not exclusively, um, there is a reference to uh, Vision Nearly tripping over an Ottoman, uh, but then he um, phases through it so that he doesn't trip, which is also uh, which is a nod not only to Dick Van Dyke tripping over the Ottoman in the opening sequence of the early seasons of the Dick Van Dyke show in later seasons, he consciously stops himself and walks around the Ottoman. Um, There are also, like, the three-camera layout. Uh, Some of the physical comedy of the episodes recalls shows like I Love Lucy, uh, which originally aired from 1951 to 1957. Um, On a first viewing, the Dick Van Dyke show, though, is the one that seemed most obvious to me. Um, Episode two moves us uh, forward in time to the uh, late 60s and early 70s, and to shows like Bewitched and I Dream of Jeannie. Again, um, Bewitched is uh, was for me the most obvious uh, nod in these episodes. Uh, Bewitched originally aired in 1964, and... Um, and went off the air in 1972 although it did switch to color in 1966 and they recast uh samantha's husband darren at one point um So this episode makes some references to things like that. Um, Again, the opening credits, if you remember Bewitched, uh, whether you watched it originally um, or in syndication uh, on things like Nick at Night, um, that opening sequence was animated. And uh, the opening credit sequence here has an animated Wanda and Vision, um, you know, traveling into their home, you know, traveling into Westview, setting up a house and whatnot. Um, The nosy neighbor, uh, Agnes, who has appeared in previous episodes. I think Agnes has very strong nods to Gladys Kravitz, who was Samantha and Darren's next-door neighbor, um, or across-the-street neighbor in Bewitched. Interestingly enough, um, Agnes Moorhead is also the actress, the name of the actress, who played Samantha's mother in Dora, On Bewitched, and given that Agnes is the alias for Agatha Harkness, who herself is a witch, I want to believe that Agnes is a nod to Agnes
1: Moorhead as well. Um, I think that was probably, I, I thought, I wondered about that too when I saw it. I think you're probably right about that.
2: Yeah. Um, So interestingly enough, these episodes uh, that draw on the late 60s, you know, late 60s and early 70s sitcoms um, both deal with women who have extraordinary powers trying to lead a normal life, Um, both with Bewitched and with I Dream of Jeannie. um, Wanda has some moments where she's clearly manipulating things through the air in a way that's very Samantha and Jeannie reminiscent Um, Episode three moves us forward into the 1970s. Uh, The obvious, uh, the most obvious um, reference here is to the Brady Bunch, which um, originally aired from 1969 to 1974. Again, the opening credits have a, um, you know, have a strong... Uh, flavor of the Brady Bunch opening, particularly with the windows, but where, whereas the tiles or the windows in, um, in the original Brady Bunch were rectangles, here they're hexes. Also, the, uh, the area that Wanda, the barrier that Wanda has created um, that is referred to by uh, the FBI and by S.W.O.R.D. as the anomaly is also referred to as the hex or the hexagon. Uh, so the shapes are hexagon. Uh, there are set updates here. The obvious nod here to the Brady Bunch is in the staircase. The staircase is updated. It's it's um, it's straight out of the Brady Bunch. Um, although my personal favorite Sung hero of episode three is the Broyhill Brasilia Credenza um, that appears in the back of these shots. Um, at this point... Um, both with the Brady Bunch and with shows like uh, some nods to uh, shows perhaps like All in the Family, which aired from 1971 to 1979. Um, You have ideas of uh, grappling with expanded or blended families trying to navigate uh, life together. Interestingly enough, All in the Family itself was based on a British TV show called Till Death Us Do Part. Um, so I think that it, as these episodes continue on, the references to uh, or the connections between the sitcom history allusions um, or parodies and the, um, you know, and the events of Wanda's and Vision's lives um, become uh, become a little bit more pronounced. Um, This episode also pokes fun at the uh, television sitcom phenomenon of trying to hide actresses' pregnancies by uh, blocking them so that they stand behind big plants um, or that they wear very large overcoats um, to try to disguise the actresses' pregnancies. Um, Episode four takes place in the present day, but um, episodes five... Uh, six and seven continue our journey through the uh, through the sitcom history pastiche. Episode five or parody. Episode five takes place in the uh, 80s and 90s. Uh, here the references um, again, in addition to the sets updating each time to reflect some of the the tropes of the uh, sitcom sets from these eras, uh, the opening sequence here draws on at least three different references that I could find, primarily to family ties, which originally aired uh, from 1982 to 1989, uh, with bits of Growing Pains and Full House thrown in. Growing Pains, which originally aired from 1985 to 1992, and Full House, which aired from 19 originally aired from 1987 to 1995. Um, one of the things that I also found particularly uh, poignant about this episode was that taking a look back at the theme songs for the original tv shows the title of the original of the theme song for family ties was what would we do without us the title of the theme song for growing pains is as long as we've got each other and the title sequence or the title song, title credit song for Full House was called Everywhere You Look. People might also notice the Full House part of the opening credits in the scenes taking place in the park, uh, both the running around and playing soccer and the um, and the picnic. Also, um, Elizabeth Olsen's sisters were, you know, were twins who played a young um you know, who played a young child on Full House, and this episode is also one of the ones that more heavily features Wanda's own twins. So there's that. Episode six moves us forward into the early aughts, with the most obvious references being to the TV show Malcolm in the Middle, which originally aired from 2000 to 2006. Um, Again, the opening credits do an extremely good job of capturing the sort of frenetic energy of the opening sequences of Malcolm in the Middle, also with um, some of the, the shift in the aughts towards the, the direct looking at the camera that appears. Um, the sons do this. Uh, the twin boys do this sometimes. Um, also, the opening credit song for this, uh, for Malcolm in the Middle, was You're Not the Boss of Me, the last line of which is Life is Unfair. And then finally, episode seven is set primarily in the, uh, in the aughts and the 2010s, um, drawing primarily on modern family and the office. Modern family, which aired from 2009 to 2020, and The Office, which originally aired from uh, 05 to 2013, both with regard to, again, the opening credit sequences, um, with the, the title of this episode was also called Breaking the Fourth Wall, and um, Elizabeth Olson does a phenomenal job of of uh, borrowing from Claire Dunfee's looking directly at the camera with the confessional-style nature of both Modern Family and The Office. And the side eye that Jim Halpert perfected in The Office shows up um, on a number of characters, I think the best of which is Agnes's. Um, this episode also does have the song Agatha All Along, which is a uh, which is uh, heavily influenced by the Munsters, which aired from 1964 to 1966. Um, in episode eight, the um, As Wanda's backstory is being developed, um, there are two uh, TV episodes that are actually shown, of which we actually see clips. Um, One of them is the Dick Van Dyke episode, Looks Like a Walnut, which is about a a TV movie that deals with an alien invasion, um, at which point... Rob Petrie, Dick Van Dyke's character, is ultimately convinced it's real um, and that we need to be suspicious of all the walnuts, but ultimately wakes up and it's all a dream. Um, And then the Brady Bunch show episode, Kitty Carryall is Missing, shows up later in this episode um, where Cindy's baby doll, whom she views as a real baby, goes missing and she's devastated. Um, So, again both with the set updates, with the opening credit sequences, and then also with playing some playing with some of the tropes of the sitcoms in these specific eras. Um, the show does a really good job of, of, I think, harnessing the energy of these shows, but also we ultimately find out that these television sitcoms are uh, Wanda's source of comfort. Uh, They were part of her family's ritual um, before she ended up losing her family. And uh, in the wake of that trauma, returning to these television shows that she enjoyed from her childhood is her escape and her solace and her comfort, which I think is really fascinating. And hopefully we can get a chance to talk about that some in a few minutes.
1: Absolutely. Um, and I thank you for going back through talking about the the TV theme songs, too, because that um, I think, you know, they're only a, they're only a minute or so long at the beginning of the episode. And then you jump into the plot of the episode. And I, I didn't necessarily always think too hard about the the theme songs at the beginning. But like you said, they pack so much information um, into those musical interludes. One other thing. um The only thing I was going to add about all of that, um, because, I mean, you did an amazing job, and I I didn't, I don't, it's funny, I didn't catch, but you're so right, I didn't catch, I didn't feel the monsters when I heard that, the Agatha All Along song, but it is, it's exactly like it, and I can't believe I didn't notice that, because I love that show when I was a kid. Um, It's the
2: electric, for me, it was the guitar that tipped me off. Yes. Um.
1: (laughs) There is an insanely catchy, um, like, remix like hip hop remix of Agatha All Along somewhere on TikTok or something it's so good um that song was in my head for days after i watched the episode cuz it's so catchy um but uh the oh the only thing i was going to add is that um at least um in some cases too when they the fil- or the, the the makers of the series they they went so deep into you know kind of um going back to these old sitcoms that at least with for the episode 1 They and you can probably tell when you watch it, but all of the special effects for that episode, they were all accomplished using only uh, things they would have had available in the 60s. So when she's moving things around the kitchen, it's just like you can tell it's wires. It's nothing. There's no CGI. Right. It's just everything is done the way they would have done it then. Um, They filmed that first episode in front of a live studio audience. And when I watched the uh, the making of on Disney Plus, they I didn't know this either. I knew there was an audience, but they actually showed you the audience. And like everyone in the audience is also dressed in period clothing. They wanted everything to feel exactly like it would have felt at a taping of the Dick Van Dyke show. Oh, wow. Um, That's so detailed. <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, also, apparently Matt Shakman and uh, one of his producers had a meal with Dick Van Dyke at Disneyland or something before they started making the series to talk to him about his experiences and everything. Um, just so much love and so much attention to detail. Um, and I would really recommend that it's not my official recommendation for tonight, but um, there's like an hour long making of um, on Disney plus about this series. And I, it was fascinating. I liked it too, because watching the making of, you got to see the colors they were wearing from the black and white episode. You got to see everybody's clothes in color, which was cool. And what the set looked like. That's also where I learned that um, to make visions face look red and black and white, his head had to be painted blue because apparently blue comes through um, as red and black and white um which is also apparently why women uh, i know they said women used to wear blue lipstick for the same reason filming black and white tv shows a long time ago um so i learned all kinds of tricks i guess um awesome now that so so we that that's a super great um kind of grounding too so now that we've kind of gone through our basic plot we've gone through our sitcom references now i feel like we can turn our attention to actually kind of some really some good discussion of what's happening in the series. So now we're going to move past our knowing and and to what we would call reading or in this case, watching. Um, And so the first question I wanted to ask, um, I want to mess with the, uh, the order just a little bit Um, because we were just talking, you were just talking about this, Sarah. My first question is actually going to be since we're riffing on these specific TV shows, which homage or which episode was your favorite and why? That's the first question, whichever one of you guys wants to go first. Well, I think
0: for me, probably the first episode was my favorite one with uh, all the Dick Van Dyke references, but also because of what you were just mentioning about how authentically period it felt. And I didn't know all those details about the lengths they went to to try to get that feeling, Um, but uh, it did come across in viewing it. And uh, also just the fun of like the, the, their. The, the misogynist things from the period that they point out <laughs> and laugh at, and the, the way the episode is set up and what happens in it—that um, that was very fun to me.
2: Marie, I can I. I definitely liked a lot of those things about the first episode also. Also, I love Deborah Jo Rupp, and she shows up in that episode as uh, Vision's boss's wife. And uh, she might be recognized by some of our viewers from that 70s show um, and others. She's shown up. Oh, and she also played Phoebe's brother's wife uh, in Friends. Um, so she's been a sitcom staple uh for a very long time, and I really, really enjoyed getting to see her um in that episode uh i you know if I had to pick a favorite um, I think my favorite might have been episode five as far as the uh, the TV illusions went, it'd be a toss-up between episode two and episode five because I loved Bewitch. Um, like, I watched it all the time on Nick at Night growing up, um, and so I really loved Agnes, um, and I really liked... Uh, I always really liked Samantha. I thought she was really cool. Um, I never did learn how to twitch my nose the way she could, but I always wanted to. Um, but then I also liked episode five because, as I mentioned, that was the first opening sequence where I realized that the songs, um, where the songs for me seemed to be very closely mirroring uh, both the inspiration songs and the lyrics of the songs that were written for the show um, seemed to be... Making very pointed references to what was happening in Wanda's and Vision's lives, and specifically, one of the things that I thought as um, as Wanda's um, backstory is fleshed out, as you know, her hurt, some of her history and some of her trauma becomes a little bit more apparent. The fact that Full House, you know, the premise of Full House, right, is that Danny Tanner is a widower. And he's trying to raise his children in the mid, you know, while also dealing with his own grief. And I thought that was incredibly poignant. Um, so for me, it's a toss up between two and five.
1: I that that never even occurred to me thinking about DNA Tanner and, and his kind of having been widowed. But that that is mm-hmm. yeah, that adds a whole other level, man. Um well, and and there are so many layers to this because you know every time I remembered that Elizabeth Olsen basically grew up on the set of that TV show, it you know it, like she grew up in sitcom land. I mean, you know, even the actors did. Um, I think as 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 a, as a as a kind of homage to a TV show, I think I think episode two is my favorite. Um, the the kind of all of that like wacky physical comedy, you know, a vision accidentally swallowing the chewing gum and you know acting crazy i mean you know like that all of that just was so spot on and felt so much like you said like bewitched or like i dream of genie um and so that was probably my favorite homage but in terms of episodes i actually think my favorite episode was was number six which is the halloween episode um and i think that one's my favorite because um you have this situation where her brother has appeared to return but She it doesn't make sense to her. She doesn't know why he's there and he doesn't look the same. And my favorite one of my favorite kind of exchanges the entire season of TV is when um, she says to him, what happens to what happened to your accent? And he says to her, what happened to yours? Like, which is very meta because it's, you know, as the films have gone on. She's she had a very thick accent when she started out in like Age of Ultron. These are supposed to be from Eastern Europe. And then as the movies went on, it faded rapidly. And so that's a kind of meta nod to her journey she spent on as a character. Another thing that made me actually really impressed with Elizabeth Olsen is if you pay close attention, her accent, the way she talks is slightly different in every episode. Like to me, her voice in the first episode sounds very 1960s kind of Mary Tyler Moore, almost in her elocution. And she doesn't sound like that. And every one by the time you get to the like the second to last and last episode, her vocal cadence is much more relaxed, much more like a modern TV show. Um, and so that I was really impressed. But I, I really like that. Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like and I, I didn't think about that at first. I like that Halloween episode because it's um, things start to accelerate and get a little bit more interesting. Vision is kind of going rogue. He's decided he's not going to cooperate, um, and she's trying to, to figure out what's happening. But that's also where you start to realize that she doesn't have the same full control over this environment the further out you get. So the closer you get to the margins, there are people who were just almost frozen in place because she's not actively controlling everyone. And that was amazing, that whole sequence where Vision wanders out to the 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 perimeter kind of and see yeah, very creepy <laughs> super creepy yes very very creepy um this is also the only episode where you see any children which is kind of freaky like they yes. talk about that like there are no kids in any other episode until she has their twins and then in this episode you see all the rest of the town's children who've apparently been inside this whole time sleeping or something um so i really really enjoyed episode six um but uh, and 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 by the way, I should say too, there's one there's one moment that I didn't mention earlier, but um, one other connection you get to other movies, which is that Monica Rambo is supposed to have disappeared in the blip which is like the big thing that happened at the end of Avengers Infinity War. But um, in the episode where there's a break, like you said, from the sitcom kind of stuff and you see um, more like present day stuff, you actually see her coming back, like recoalescing from the dust. And you see the aftermath of like what it would have been like in the moments after everyone just started popping back into existence. And that's not something you see in any other Marvel movie. Like you don't see any of that happen. Um, At the end of Avengers Endgame, they bring everybody back. Yay! And that's like, you know, and then they all participate in the big battle, the end. (laughs) Like, so you don't see the chaos that would have ensued, really, when all these people just flash back into existence. They do talk a little bit about that on Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which is their other series that they came out with this year. Um, Anyway, but I hadn't thought about that until they showed it on this TV series. Yeah, speaking
0: about that and uh, how Monica is... um, Appearing in this this series and the role that her character plays, one thing that was interesting to me there with um, Monica was how she's set up as this parallel to Wanda and in terms of their grief and how the blip plays into that. I thought that was really good because both of the characters have... Um, just uh, resurfaced after the blip, uh, just before the start of the show's timeline, and they've both suffered losses that are recent to them, but that's old to the unblipped world, because you had uh, Vision who died, and Monica's mother died during the blip, we learn. Um, So I thought that was actually a pretty smart use of the blip to Sort of comment on grief and the passage of time because it can feel like that. I think, like for me, my mother died almost exactly two years ago now. And actually, Katie, while you were talk when you were talking about going to see uh, Avengers: Endgame, I was remembering that's the last movie I went to see with her. And when oh, we were man. preparing for this episode. Yeah, I was thinking. I was thinking like I should go back and watch some of those movies, and for some reason I just didn't want to. And I think that's why I didn't want to. Just remembering yeah. that. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's that that sense of time passing differently that can be connected to grief. And I think this show is sort of saying something like that. Um, that grief can feel like that for the rest of the world. The loss was years ago, but for you it was yesterday. And um, the blip serves that purpose here um and also the, the parallel between monica and wanda and their losses um, does serve a good purpose in showing that you don't have to like uh, mentally enslave thousands of people in response to your grief so because monica doesn't right? do that
1: <laughs> exactly um exactly which and that's that's actually that's a good segue into um into the question of so wanda is the protagonist of this show, but also in many ways, especially as time goes by and you realize what's happening, a villain. (laughs) Um, And so what did you guys think about that kind of narrative or ethical complexity? Like, how did that sit with you?
2: Well, one of the things that actually first struck me about that, and I'm going to take this in a slightly different direction. That's fine. um, It seemed almost archetypal to me and and the reason and the reason it did was that as i was as i was thinking about um as i was thinking about the potential villainy in wanda but the connection of wanda's potential villainy to grief and the potentially isolating you know you know the 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 isolating component that can exist with grief i started thinking about um uh, I started thinking about Gilgamesh having lost Enkidu, and then I started thinking about um, Grendel. Um, who, okay. So we these are works that I I teach in in the the classes that I teach, but. Um, but with my Brit Lit students, we read Beowulf, but then we read John Gardner's Grendel. And one of the things that we talk about a lot with Grendel is, um, you know, Grendel's own sense of isolation, his, his desire to participate in the human community. And when he goes to visit the dragon in John Gardner's novel, the dragon tells Grendel that he can be a part of the story, but he has to be the villain.
1: So he has
2: to remain isolated in order to be part of a community or something like, you know, like something to that effect, the sort of profound irony or even something like Frankenstein's creature. So I started wondering what connections might be there. And, you know, Monica Rambo seems to be a really good counterpoint to that, that if there does seem to be this trope of loss or isolation or. um you know, or even grief being connected to decisions that might lead to what could be considered villainy, then yeah, Monica seems to provide the counterpoint to that. Um, But I'm not, yeah, but I wasn't sure if that was just me thinking too much (laughs) Um, or trying to make those connections where they might not exist. So um, if, if I'm totally cracked uh, you know, or if I'm totally off base, please, um, I'm, I, you know, I, I welcome feedback. But those were some of the thoughts that first came to mind for me.
0: Well, that makes sense to me. And I think your point about isolation and relation to the potential villainy, uh, that, is, that sort of stood out to me with the, the final scene uh, with Wanda alone again didn't feel extremely hopeful to me, even though she's trying to gain control of her magic. But she's just moved from this isolation of her invented reality to this other kind of isolation. And I mean, hasn't she learned that you aren't able to open your magic by yourself on an island? No, <laughs> but hopefully she's going to find some mentors at some point, probably. And Uh, One of the next storylines, but I wouldn't be surprised if she is a villain for a while in one of the next storylines, too, though I'd suspect she'd be redeemed in the end. But she just wasn't she wasn't an extremely sympathetic character, at least to me here. Um, We do have, you know, the complexity of her grief and her lack of control of her magic. But it's just like she's just enslaving a town full of people and then just keeps on doing it. And also she just seems to be okay with disintegrating her children. Like even if they're magically created children, it's that was a weird scene to me. (laughs) I don't know. Um, Yeah, so so I wouldn't be surprised to see more development of uh, kind of villainous aspects uh, as we go on.
2: One of the things that I was wondering, and Katie, I didn't know if you were going to say this, so I I apologize if I'm stepping on your toes. Uh, One of the things that I did end up uh, reading about in some of my, um, in some of my research for this episode was that I think in the comic books, Agatha Harkness does become a mentor to the Scarlet Witch. So to your point, Marie, that might be something that gets teased out in some of those subsequent movies. Um, so yes, Agatha might come back. Uh, maybe I don't know.
1: Yeah, but in the comic like,
2: books, she does. Yeah.
1: They're supposed to have been, yeah, like friends or like an ally at least of of the Scarlet Witch. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't know much ab- about that. Um, I think you're right, Marie. The ending is ex- extremely disquieting. <laughs> Not least of which because you literally get a scene. I mean, in that last moment, you she's literally bifurcated. So you see her sitting on the porch kind of drinking her tea mm-hmm. and it looks peaceful. But inside, she's basically kind of like astral projecting part of herself. And she's like reading the dark hole, which the dark hold came up on, uh, I think, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. There were a couple of episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. where people were trying to get a hold of the Dark Hold. And when it came up on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., every person who read it like, immediately went insane um, with, like, crazed crazed for power. Now, these were regular people, right? They weren't powered people, but still, it was not cool. It was not a good idea. You were not supposed to read the book. Um, so, yeah, I there's a ton of complexity, and I think one of the things that is the most interesting to me that makes it the most difficult to parse is that it becomes clear that Wanda doesn't necessarily – at first, I think she doesn't even realize that she's doing it, and so it's almost like she she has this explosion of grief, creates this entire little world and then almost immediately has like a memory loss that she's the one who's done it. And so that's like in the first episode, she has these really disquieting moments where she's realizing for the first time, I don't know when we got married. What happened? Yeah. You know, she has that kind of. um she's suppressed it. That's the word that I was looking for. She suppressed her grief was so intense. She suppressed it. And so, um, so in the beginning you can kind of forgive her a little cause it's like, she doesn't know she's doing it, but you're right when you can tell she's figuring out she has control over the environment. But what she uses that to do is just to ruthlessly push away anything that's threatening this happy world that she's created. And that, um, and that becomes a problem. And then, you know, I guess I suppose that there's any redemption for her in this this just the first season is at the end at the end when she the people say to her she's like but you're but you're happy because you get the it's it's interesting at the end you get these glimpses of what the town was like before wanda transformed it and like it's not perfect it's kind of run down and you know a little sad and she says something like well i made your lives better and they basically say no you didn't (laughs) you know things might look prettier now but we are miserable because we're being controlled you know, we're enslaved, like you said. And so, um, you know, that was really interesting, too, to me that she for a moment tried to take refuge behind. a, Well, I made your lives better by controlling you. You know, that's very dark. Um, and uh, but, yeah. you know, at the end, she does the right thing and, you know, undoes the magic, opens the hex, lets these people escape. Um, but, you know, with what kind of damage? like, you know, I mean, now they're going to, they're all going to bear trauma because of what she did because of her trauma. And so, you know, it's kind of layers of trauma all the way down, which we didn't say a lot about that word before, but that was going to be a completely different question. But I think we've already been talking about it is that this is a, it's a, it's a portrayal of emotional trauma and how people react to it. And like you were saying before, I think Sarah, one of you guys was saying that Monica reacts differently um, than Wanda. And one of the things that Monica does is that she, in her grief, she reaches out to Wanda. So she rather, right. Wanda attempts to escape into a happier feeling. Um, Monica, recognizes another grieving person and she pushes in, literally pushes her way in to the barrier, you know, which I think is a, is a great metaphor. She's, she's kind of pushing her way into, into the heart of Wanda, into her psyche and to try to help her help her, you know, even though she knows that what Wanda's doing is dangerous and, and is really bad for everybody who's in there. And it's fascinating to me that her um, insistence on continuing to try to help Wanda by pushing in is what gives her her superpower that's amazing Um, and I love that you know um, what did you guys think about that well what you're saying actually makes sense for
0: me of something I was sort of wondering about which is why does Monica keep defending Wanda when like it's not great what she's doing in Westview, but Monica keeps sort of defending her to the sword um, people. It's It must be because, like you're saying, she's identifying with Wanda in their their pain and their grief. Um, so she has the, the urge to defend her coming from that, probably.
1: Well, I suppose, you know, if you think about how it connects to other stories, as a child, Monica Rambeau was close with captain marvel so this is not the first super powered person she's come across and so i mean i don't know like is she thinking you know could monica Rambeau be thinking in the back of her mind like what if captain marvel had had everyone she loved you know like i mean what if captain marvel had had these kinds of losses what would she have become you know and i mean she does to some degree she loses people that she cares about and she went through a lot of stuff too but um it's just interesting um it's interesting how she you know and, and i mean it it helps make wanda look better that the head of sword is unequivocally bad right he's yeah he's, yeah <laughs> yeah he's portrayed as a one-dimensional yeah. villain um and to me the only one-dimensional villain because even agatha like i mean agatha is ruthless and she is power hungry and she's fighting wanda not because wanda's hurting all these people but because she wants her power it's like this raw will to power i mean you know when she, when when the, her, uh, the rest of her, they show you in a flashback when the rest of her coven wasn't okay with her just trying to acquire ever more power. She just kills them all and takes all their power. But even she comes across as somehow more sympathetic than the head of sword, <laughs> which is so funny. Um, what did you guys think? um So we've been talking a lot about Monica and Wanda. And um, those two plus Agatha are really the main characters in the show. Vision is a big part of it. But, you know, at, as you find out, he's, he's not the original vision. He's literally a creation of Wanda's mind. And so what is, um, how does that focus on the kind of female psyche on these three central characters who are all women? How does that make this series different from other Marvel stuff or just other superhero stories you've seen?
0: Um, Well, for me, I mean, you do notice that there are lots of female characters and that's a great thing, you know, like with something like the Supergirl show where you go, yep, those are female characters and they're women talking to women, women fighting women and befriending women and you know, all that good stuff. We have that going on. Um, but for me also it was interesting thinking about gender in the show the role that uh, that Vision plays um, because uh, Vision's resurrection seemed a little bit different from some, uh, some other superhero things here to me because often in like superhero movies centering on male characters um, you have the male body go through a lot of suffering and either like near death or sometimes he might even die entirely only to reemerge restored and inflicting violence on enemies to win in the end. Um, And it could be argued, uh, has been argued, that this trope shores up a a vision of the male body as impregnable and triumphant. Um, So Vision's resurrection here seemed to me to potentially depart from this a little bit. So for one thing, the Westview Vision, um, I mean specifically, his resurrection is dependent on female action, with Wanda literally creating him, rather than being attended by a passive female spectatorship, which would be more usual. And uh, two, the Westview Vision doesn't end up whole and restored, but instead he ultimately submits to the opposite, um, this complete and seemingly final disintegration, Um, and three, even though the visions inevitably have this big mid-air battle, the Westview vision ends up removing the threat posed by the white vision, not through violence, but through sharing knowledge, and that's also, his conflict there is also not the main climactic physical conflict of the narrative, which is between uh, Wanda and Agatha. So I wouldn't necessarily go so far as to say that this is really an extreme departure from resurrections in superhero shows because, like, there are so, so many ways (laughs) for these resurrections to happen, which is something that the show seems to poke a little fun at um, with the the Westview Vision wondering, in his final words, how he will reappear next. Uh, But in terms of your, like, run-of-the-mill superhero restoration slash... Uh, slash resurrection and uh, the reinforcement there of this particular view of a triumphant masculinity. It did seem potentially a little bit different, which I thought was maybe part of the more um, feminine focus of the show. Um, The White Visions resurrection might end up being more standard in that regard. I don't know. We'll see there, I suppose. Um, And also it's kind of just... Sent me off to just thinking something related. Uh, uh, if you think of this as an echo of Christ's resurrection, because obviously what superhero resurrection doesn't have that echo, but especially in this case, you have this man who's this human slash other hybrid with miraculous abilities who had originally sacrificed his life to save the world. So you have a strong echo here. It sort of makes you wonder about. Um, what ways we can present Christ's crucifixion and resurrection today that also don't just like reinforce this triumphant masculine body uh, trope? Well,
2: you know, Marie, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because uh, that you mentioned the the sort of potential for Christological crossovers or you know Christological references because there was one in particular in the final episode that smacked me in the face. And it was actually Wanda. Um, Before their big midair battle, I think Agatha is in the air, which the fact that Agnes and Agatha are also both names of early Christian martyrs um, is something that I'm still I'm still trying to work through, Um, you know, what might be going on there.
1: That's so true. And that, that never occurred to me until you said it Wow. Right. One of them was, right.
2: So they were both martyred for, um, for holding fast to their faiths, uh, in spite of their, you know, um, even in the face of being actively pursued by men. So I think Agnes's would be, you know, would be suitor, uh, tortured her and then had her beheaded. Um, and then I think Agatha was drawn and stretched and her breasts were cut off. Um, after being tortured for something like four days, um, but but the Wanda moment, um, uh, Agatha is I think in the air, and Wanda is on the ground, and Wanda stretches her arms out wide and says to Agatha, "I'm not who you say I am."
0: Mm, yeah, yeah, okay. interesting. I didn't even which, think about that. Yeah,
2: right. Which. It, Specifically, it was the blocking. It was the arms out. And then again, that sort of that sort of cross between, you know, subverting Yahweh, I am who am and, you know, and subverting, you know, also Jesus's moment before the Sanhedrin. And the fact that it was Wanda doing that was something that I was I was again, I was trying to figure out what might be going on there. Um, I, I know that. Uh, there have been many articles written about the the fact that the Marvel universe, uh, in some respects, tries to go out of its way to avoid being, you know, too explicitly grounded in any one specific um, spirituality or religiosity. But that moment really stood out to me as, um, as perhaps something more than purely accidental. Um, So I'm not sure how that would inform, you know, how that might uh, work in tandem with, um, you know, with the comments that you were making, Marie. Hmm.
1: This is all very interesting. And I, one of the things I was thinking, Marie, when you were talking about vision, not being a typical kind of um, masculine vision of a superhero resurrection, I was thinking another thing that I appreciate about this. And if you're thinking about subverting, tropes is that um the only other kind of male character that we've seen before in the mcu who shows up in this movie is jimmy woo and he is i think a wonderful character because he does not fit the typical stereotype of a male fbi agent um, he does not in the series and he does not in the ant-man movies um, he is Um, he is sweet. He is, um, he's, you you get to see a lot of vulnerability from him. You can tell he thinks he's kind of uncool, but he's trying to be cooler. Um, he, you know, and, and there's a really funny moment with Darcy where she asks him, do you want one? And she's like referring to a snack, but he thinks that she's talking about kids. Do you want kids? And he very earnestly starts talking to her about how he really would like to have kids one day. You know, um, he's just so, um, emotionally accessible. Um, and doesn't, you know, he doesn't have the typical, I'm a federal agent guy energy, which I really appreciate. Um, I think he's a, he's a very bright spot, um, in all the, all the moments I've seen him. Um, I think that the, the, the part that you mentioned of the visions having their exchange of information, their exchange of knowledge, that was fascinating and you're right. It's so, um, Different because they do. They have this kind of they have what looks like it's going to be a typical battle, right, of flying around through the sky and slamming into each other and things get broken and it looks like it's going to be the typical violent showdown. But then where it ends is an almost peaceful scene of kind of slowly flying around together in the top of this, I guess the courthouse building. I don't know what the building is. Um, I think it must've been the library. It was full of books. Yes. Oh, well then that's Yeah, I think it was the
2: library from episode two.
1: Okay. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's perfect symbolism too. Of course it's the library. Um, you know, and that was, that was very, that was, was cool. And it was, it was kind of fascinating and different. I think my favorite part about the end, uh, is about that final confrontation between Agatha and um, and Wanda is, for one thing, it is different because Agatha has been set up to be the villain. But Wanda is also complex and complicated. And while Agatha wants her her power, that's her main motivation is that she wants her power. But she also seems to have this disquieted sense that Wanda is too dangerous. And so she needs to stop her which is more something that you would hear a hero say, you know, she says like there's whole chapters devoted to you in the dark cold and you're, you're an abomination, (laughs) you know, I mean, she's kind of, um, she knows all this information about the Scarlet Witch, but she didn't know until this moment that it's Wanda, that Wanda is this person that she's only heard legends about the Scarlet Witch. And so she's, um, you know, as a viewer, you might have just a hot second of thinking, should Wanda be Neutralized? Like, you know, the way that Agatha talks about her, it makes you sound like that if she's going to be turned into this unequivocal villain in the future. Um, and Wanda keeps insisting, that's not who I am. That's not who I am. Um, I really like in their final confrontation that Wanda defeats her not by using brute force, but basically by using trickery. You know, she uses the knowledge that she's gotten from Agatha about kind of witchcraft and who who has the power within the circle. Um, she uses that as a way to trick her. But the other way that, that Wanda triumphs is that Agatha thinks that she has taken all of Wanda's power. And Wanda says something like, "You, you have no idea how much power I have. You know, you think you've triumphed, but that's just because you think you've taken all of it. But there's more. There's more power within me than you know. But I think that's really poignant, too, because there's apparently clearly also way more power in Wanda than Wanda knew about. And that, you know, to a certain yeah. degree, she's unknown to herself. And, you know, um, and I, so that and that was was also really, really interesting. Um, and there's also a, to me a kind of weird implication in the series that without all of her grief and trauma and what even without the victimization that she made these people of Westview who go through, would she have ever discovered these things about herself? I don't know. You know, it's a, it's a very um, Wanda's personal journey to knowing herself is one with a lot of collateral damage um and that's something that i hope that they don't keep i hope that they keep talking about it if there's a second season i hope they don't just leave that aside you know what i mean i hope that the people of us do you that, th- that they're not just never mentioned again you know um because do you think there would be a second season i think it seems like it's sort of um i don't know closed I mean, off from that it depends i feel like it could go either way you're right i mean the 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 the, the the strings that are untied may all literally just be there to be tied up in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. So maybe not. Maybe there won't be. Um, Because for one thing, if they ever came back around to WandaVision, it would obviously feel like a completely different show because they're not going to be doing the same structure anymore. Right. It's not going to be kind of sitcom by sitcom. Right. So it would have a completely different feel, even if it did come back. Yeah. Um, It seems like that's sort of been played out now. Well, I think we should probably move on because we've had a a really, really long rich conversation, Um, but we probably need to move to passing on. Before we do though, is there any, was there anything else you guys wanted to say? Any final comments?
2: Uh, well, one of the things just uh, with regard to some of our, our most recent conversation, um, and it, it refers back to the conversation uh, between the two visions, um, but then also some of the broader conversations that we've been having um, about uh, about trauma, about grief, about responding, um, the visions have a conversation, I think, the references to the conundrum of, uh, is it Theseus's ship?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot The, about the one that. about the
2: ship. So it's like, you know, if boards are gradually replaced at the moment that the last board from the original ship is replaced, is it still the same ship? Um, and, you know, and the answer is yes and no. And ultimately it kind of becomes a question about how do objects survive change? And I think that it's a really... I don't think it's too far a stretch to transfer that to how do people survive change, which seems to be one of the overarching um, through lines through all of these episodes. Um, So I I thought that was really interesting. And so how do how do people survive change? And I think in this case, specifically Wanda. Um, I mean, also also Monica. Um, You know, and perhaps also Agatha, depending on how uh, Agatha comes back in subsequent uh, films or series. Um, But, yeah, how does Wanda survive change? Um, You know, and what what does yeah, what does that mean? Sort of very big picture, but also what does that mean um, for the MCU moving forward?
1: How about you marie any final thoughts
0: i guess the only thing would be i just really hope that they at some point clear up what's going on with all of the ads <laughs> in this series but i think they might not be i think that might be just what we have is these creepy ads um people have all sorts read... of theories about how they're <laughs> how they're yeah, related to uh, wanda yeah
2: I read somewhere that a lot of them are references to pro, uh, to, to moments or storylines or characters from elsewhere in the in the MCU. Um, yeah, that's that's
1: true. Um,
2: although I, think, I do think my favorite one of those ads was the paper towel ad because I totally remember the Brawny and Bounty paper towel wars in TV commercials from the eighties. And I thought that one was great.
1: Um, I laughed out loud (laughs) at that one
2: because I totally remember all of those from growing up. Um,
1: yeah, they did a great job. Like, down, you know, down to the last detail with that. I some of those have reference. A lot of them have references to Wanda's background. Like I think the one with the watches um, has a reference to uh, oh, what was his name? Whichever this, whoever the yes, guy Strucker, was. Strucker, right? Strucker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Baron Strucker, who was one of the ones who created, gave her and her brother their powers. Um, so they're all kind of. They have these these echoes. But it is creepy. It's and it, and also it's just very effective at unsettling the viewer because those people in the ads, you only see them in the ads. They're not. Few people. So, like,
2: That's right. who are
1: these people? Has she just imagined them in her mind? Like, oh, you know, yeah. um, the, the only other thing I wanted to say is just that um, kind of regarding how does this tie into the other films is that in the some of the other movies, you have this ongoing discussion between the Avengers, the male Avengers, about who is the strongest Avenger. So, like, Thor thinks he's the strongest Avenger, and there's a a gag about that in Thor Ragnarok. Um, Everybody else seems to think that Hulk is probably the strongest Avenger. In Avengers of Age of Ultron, they all stand around and try to see who can lift Thor's hammer. Um, And uh, they try to get Black Widow to try, and she says, that's not a question I need answered, um, which is a great answer. Um, But I think that this series, to me, pretty definitively proves that really Wanda is probably the strongest Avenger, because she's the only one who can literally create things ex nihilo. We would say. Right. Like she she can just make stuff. She can control everyone. I mean, the kind of that kind of chaos magic. I mean, nobody else. Dr. Strange has has some of that. It makes perfect sense to me that they're putting them together because he has a lot of that same stuff. um, Some of those same powers Um, when he had the time stone, he had power over time, for example. Um, And so he can make what appear he can make things appear to just appear. But it's because he's eclipsing the time. It's not because he's creating things from nothing. Um, the way that wanda seems able to do so i thought it was interesting that they kind of gave her her own series and in that series kind of set about proving that she's the most powerful of anyone um you know while at the same time exploring all of her her depths i thought was was very cool um well let's let's give our our recommendations tonight um and uh we're gonna so let's let's pass on something and marie we're gonna start with you
0: Sure. So I'll go ahead and recommend the piece that I was thinking of when I was talking about the trope of the um, triumphant masculine body. That was a chapter titled "Suffering/Slash Triumph," Chapter One of Kent Brentnell's 2012 study titled "Eké Homo: The Male Body and Pain as Redemptive Figure." Um, so he he talks about action movies there and applies his analysis to the portrayal of Christ's suffering in Mel Gibson's Passion. And one takeaway of his book for me is that this is like a kind of interesting lens to use in thinking about portrayals of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Like, do these portrayals reinforce a triumphant masculinity or do they focus on human fragility and frangibility, which is something that Brentnell sees
1: as this more useful focus for them to have thanks so much um, how about you Sarah?
2: all right my um, my recommendation uh, for this time around is something that is uh, that came out of some of my thinking about um, about our discussions about grief and trauma and um, uh, you know, and and how we respond to change, and and all of these questions that are proven so fruitful this evening. And it's a book that I've actually just started reading, but was recommended to me. And it's called uh, "Broken Gods: Hope, Healing, and the Seven Longings of the Human Heart" um, by uh, Gregory Popcheck. Um, it's a book that um, that explores Uh, Pretty much exactly what um, uh, exactly what the subtitle indicates, uh, but also talks a little bit about um, about theosis and um, and humanity understanding itself um, and and understanding how it uh, you know, how humanity is uh, is related to God, um, you know, and can you know, can establish relationship Uh, to God and with God through hope, healing, and the seven longings of the human heart. Um, I'm only a couple of chapters in, but I think it might be uh,
1: interesting reading for uh, some of our listeners. Thanks so much. Um, My recommendation is actually going to be in the MCU vein um, since we've been talking about that tonight. Um, And I am going to recommend Ant-Man and the Wasp. From 2018, I I love both Ant-Man movies, but I'm going to recommend Ant-Man and the Wasp because it's one example. I think um, it's the rare example in the MCU of a movie that, to me, feels like it has dual male and female protagonists. Um, so the first Ant-Man movie is called Ant-Man. And it's about Ant-Man. The second movie, Ant-Man and the Wasp, um, elevates and um, complicates the character of Hope Van Dyne, who's in the first movie. But in the first movie, she is very much adjunct to her father, um, Hank Pym, who's uh, the bigger presence in that movie. But in Ant-Man and the Wasp, she's she's become part of the title. But that movie is exploring her, um, I guess, her emotional trauma of having grown up without her mother, um, who this is, sounds incredibly comic book and ridiculous as I say it out loud but her mother was lost in the quantum realm when she was a child and she hasn't seen her mother since she was about seven years old and in Ant-Man and the Wasp you find out that in fact her mother has been alive in the quantum realm the entire time and um, that is the big thing that the film turns on. There's also another character in that movie um, who they call Ghost who is a young woman who has a a kind of superpower but also really a curse of um, constant uncontrollable phasing. She can walk through things but she can't control it, and she cannot be physical, and she's slowly disappearing. But she also has a background marked by trauma and orphanhood, and a lot of these, both of these women in this movie, Ant-Man and the Wasp, are dealing with some of the same um, emotions and feelings that Wanda has in WandaVision. So, um, And another thing that I think is interesting is that apparently hereafter, the Ant-Man movies are going to be Ant-Man and the Wasp, because the next one is called Ant-Man and the Wasp, Mania. So she has, you know, become kind of a co-protagonist of that film series, which I think is really interesting. So that's my recommendation is Ant-Man and the Wasp. Um, well, listeners, thank you so much um, for hanging with us tonight and listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. You know that we love to hear from you. So if you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to get in touch, you can do that at Christian Feminist Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Network. And um, you can check out the show notes from this episode and other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at ChristianHumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, Kristen philippic is our press liaison. For Sarah Thomas and Marie Haas, I'm Katie Grubbs. Tune in in two weeks when we'll be discussing uh, Hulu's series, Mrs. America, about Phyllis Schlafly and the ERA. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.